Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Minneapolis. With me is Greg Velasquez in Des Moines. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. We're kicking off today with an interview. Justin Glad joined from Salt Lake City, and we talked about a lot of good stuff. January camp, cohesiveness among the young guns in the American program, modern center backs, and his ambition to play in Europe. Greg and I will get into some heavy pontification on other subjects later in the episode, but first, Justin Glad, 21-year-old center back for Real Salt Lake and one of the most promising young American defenders. Justin, thanks for joining us. Uh, How's it going, man? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing well. Let's start by talking a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you get into soccer? When did it start to become apparent that you were really good at it? Yeah. um, So I grew up in Seattle, Washington until I was about, until I was going into middle school, so sixth grade. And then I moved to Tucson, Arizona. And then kind of just by accident, I found out about the uh, RSL Academy that was in Casa Grande at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got, I got into soccer just because I have an older brother and sister, and they both played growing up. So I just kind of followed in their footsteps. Um, and then, yeah, uh, I played club soccer growing up. And then when I moved to Tucson, two of the buddies, two, two buddies I had on my club team actually went to the academy the year before I did um, and told me I should try out. And then things sort of fell in place, and I ended up headed there. Um, and then, I don't know, the, the goal the goal for me was always to get a college scholarship and and hopefully pay my way through college with, with sports. Um, but I think when I, when I started realizing that, hey, maybe I could go pro was – when I when I first got called into a couple of reserve games, um, and just and and seeing that the team had had their eye on me, and that was kind of when I was like, oh, maybe maybe I'll have the option to go pro or college, and then make my decision from there. I see, I see. What were the biggest jumps in development and competition along that line? I think for those of us who haven't played like elite soccer, that's a lot of us kind of wonder that. Mm-hmm. Where's the where do the biggest jumps happen? I think taking care, just taking care of yourself as a pro and taking care of your body and, and eating right. And, and all that stuff that you don't really think about as a, as a kid or playing club soccer that you definitely have to take that into consideration, um, at the next level. Um, and then for me, the biggest jump was just the speed of play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, coming in, it, obviously, uh, I was good enough because they, they signed me and stuff, but there's still definitely, uh, a jump in the and how fast you have to be mentally how fast you have to be physically um and just kind of having your next pass picked out and knowing just everything happens faster so you get closed down quicker and all that um and that was definitely the biggest jump for me is being able to play quick and knowing where my next pass was without without taking that that extra touch yeah was the biggest jump in that way from like the academy to playing for the monarchs or or I mean, obviously, there's a big jump between the Monarchs and playing first-team soccer for Real Salt Lake. But, yeah. But, like, are they comparable differences? Yeah. No, I, I think I think MLS is much faster than than USL. Um, just 
it, it definitely helped having having that reserve league as a stepping stone to try and get to that MLS level, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the jump from the academy to Monarchs is is big, and then the jump from Monarchs to the first team I think is also a, a decent gap just in terms of the speed of play and how much time you have on the ball. Our podcast and sort of my Twitter account and stuff are most focused on the national team. So I'm I'm really curious how how was January camp? Yeah, January camp was awesome. Um, yeah, I mean it was a really good time. It was a lot of young guys um, who are kind of I don't know. There were a lot of people, including myself, who had their first call up. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of all all in new new waters and, and exploring and and trying to figure it out. Um, but then you have some of the older guys who are helping you learn the ropes and, and taking you through it. Um, and it was fun. It was a lot of competition, a lot of just getting to know the team, getting to know the coaches, and, and getting to know that level. Because um, even then, from, from MLS to the national team, there's a jump as well. Um, and it's, it's quicker, it's faster. Um, so, yeah, it, I think, I mean, I, I personally enjoyed it. Um, and I think it was a good stepping stone again, a good, a good place to kind of weigh your feet and, and see that level. Um, and then use that going forward as just more experience and, and some to some to use for the upcoming seasons. Yeah. What are some, I mean, maybe you can't talk about this too much, but like to the extent that you can, what are some specific differences between, I don't know, USMNT training and RSL training? Is it a lot of the same stuff? Uh, I think I think it was different just because the coaches were were trying to look at a bunch of new players, um, whereas at RSL, obviously our our head coach Mike he knows he knows other players so and he has specific drills for you know the way a certain team plays or whatever our next opponent's going to be, whereas at the national team it was kind of trying to look at a bunch of new players and identify new players and put them in different scenarios and, and see how people adapt and stuff like that. So I think there was, there was a, a difference there. Um, and then again, just when you have a, an MLS team, it obviously it's, it's a lot of good players, but the, the national team is, is if you will, the cream of the crop. Um, mm-hmm. So it's less poor touches, you know, more, it's more clinical, just stuff like that. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool. What surprised you? Did anything surprise you about it? About the the whole experience? Besides uh, the quality, no, I thought. Yeah, no, I, I thought I, I kind of had an idea because I had talked to to Bex and Nick and you know people who have have gone through those steps before, um, and they had kind of given me a good idea of of how it'd be, and then I also had. I had Brooke, Danny, and, and Tyler Adams and all these young guys that I played U-20s with. So it kind of the, – the transition felt good. It felt um, – I don't know. I felt comfortable just because I, I knew the people around me and I, and I kind of had an idea going into the camp what it would look like. Yeah, that makes sense. That segues nicely to my next question, which is uh, it seems like a lot of you former U-20s. Um, and, by the way, congratulations on the January camp call-up and – it was fun to watch you guys. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And it was fun to watch you guys uh, in South Korea too. I thought you played really well last year in that tournament in your in your minutes. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. How's the how's the cohesion in the in the larger group of young guys? You know, including the guys overseas. I think a lot of fans wonder. 
about that. Is there like a Snapchat group or what's, what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and especially as, as more of our guys kind of make their way to Europe, like, you know, Eric Palmer Brown, I, I don't, I've never personally met Weston, but, um, he's boys with Tyler Adams, who's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's going to help on the field as well, just because you got a bunch of, a bunch of young guys who are kind of on the same page and like I don't know I see I see Eric is always playing Fortnite with with a bunch of the European guys <laughs> Tyler and them always in touch um which is really cool um uh I I personally don't know too many of the European guys but um I mean I'm sure if we if we hung out got called into a camp once it'd be same page just because we're all kind of the same age and and relatively hit the same path in terms of coming up through the youth national team system and then either signing for a, a MLS team or, or a European team. Um, so, yeah, I think there is, there is kind of a camaraderie there. That's great to hear. What do you, so that's the positive side. So let's talk about the negative side real quick. What, what do you make of the world cup qualifying failure? Tell me how you've been processing that. Well, first maybe tell me where, did you watch the, the Trinidad game? Where did you watch it? And, what did you think? Yeah, um, yeah, I I watched it just at my house, um, and that was obviously a big disappointment. I mean, there's always, I mean, it's the World Cup. I mean, you can't you can't not be disappointed, you know. Um, but I think at the same time, after a couple of days of processing, you know, like ah, we're we're not in it. We're not. I can't I can't turn the TV on and watch the U.S. play. Um, I think there was kind of a a silver lining for for some of these for for all of the young players in terms of it's this is kind of a, an opportunity for us to step in and and show the coaches that yeah we're ready and we want to be we want to be there for the next World Cup so that that doesn't happen again. Turning to Real Salt Lake a little bit, um, you you guys picked up fourteen points in sixteen matches last season while Justin Glad was either injured or with the U twenties. And then with you in the lineup, the team earned I think my math is right on this, thirty one points in eighteen matches, which is basically twice as successful. What changed in the second half of last season and what, what did you bring to the squad that, that it apparently needed? Yeah. Um I think there I think there were a lot of things. That, that sort of came together. I'm, I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that I came back and we just magically started playing better. Um, we had we had a lot of injuries uh, at the beginning of the season, um, which was which was obviously tough. We had me, Danny, uh, Brooks, Bofo, all with the U20s, um, and, and they were they were also contributing minutes and and being uh, and, and helping the team out. Um, so when we all came back. It definitely it definitely gave a boost to their squad, and then we kind of I don't know we we kind of hit our stride. Um, and for me, I think I, I I don't know I think I brought maybe. I, uh, hmm, tough question. I think it. I think consistency is kind of is is what I would say, just in terms of I think I, I came into every game, knowing that I needed I need to put in a solid performance and and we'll have a shot no matter what um and then our our attacking group kind of found kind of found their stride which obviously puts less stress on the defense so there were 
there was a lot of things that, that came together um, and really helped us kind of hit our, our, our streak towards the end of the season. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of fun guys to watch on your guys' team. Uh, I love watching Jefferson Savarino when he's on his game. Um, yeah, what a player. Yeah, very, very fun to watch. So it's been a mixed start to this season. I had a tough game a couple of days ago. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What's your assessment, and how can you guys get back to the form of the second half of 2017? Yeah, I think I think in talking about last the end of last season, we kind of had we had our identity, and we had the we're we're going to possess this team, and and they're going to be afraid to come in and play us. Um, and I think we just need to get back to that where we have we know what we want to do. We want to impose our will on teams. Um, and just get back to that that confidence that we had, um, and kind of even a, a swagger that we had, which which teams had to respect. Um, and we just gotta we gotta find a way back to that, uh, how, however that may be. What do you? What are the key areas of growth for you as a player? I mean, like, what do you? What did you hear? Going back to the national team for a second, what did you hear from the coaches about like what the next step is for you? How can you become, mm-hmm. you know, an automatic call up and you know maybe ultimately a, a starting eleven center back for the national team? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I think it's it's both being vocal and, and being that a leader, you know, that that everyone can always rely on, um, and then just the the physicality. Um, obviously still, I'm not, I'm not a big center back by any means. Um, and, and just working on, working on getting bigger and faster and stronger. And then, and then being the leader back there and really taking command, um, is what will bring my game to, to the next level. Um, and hopefully with, with consistency, I think, you know, for defenders, consistency is key. So if you just do that week in, week out, it's tough not to, or it will be tough for the coaches to, to ignore that. Right. A lot is being made of center backs who can either carry the ball into space and destabilize the defense a little bit or, may of course, mm-hmm. play a good pass through the lines. Is that is that skill a requirement for center backs nowadays? And how important is it to you? Yeah, I think, I think it's absolutely a requirement. Um, obviously... You know, defense comes first uh, always. That's that's what we get paid to do. We get paid to to keep the ball out of the back of the net. But I think uh, where we are uh, in the league and and kind of with at the level with internationally, you have to be you got to be able to be able to make that pass and to keep possession of the ball, um, even if the team is pressing or, or anything like that. Um, just because I mean. Other other than you you look in at Europe and you look at the other center backs and they're, they're playing out of everything which is mm-hmm. awesome, um, and and it, it it makes for pretty soccer. Um, so I think there there's definitely it, it should be a requirement for for a center back to be able to create that pass and 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 keep possession of the ball and and provide something else as opposed to just oh I'm gonna boot the ball forward and, and maybe we'll recover it up top a little bit or they're, they're right back down our throats. Um, and, and I think it changes the game as well when you have a confident center back who can who can take the space and find the open pass. It, it makes the job easier for everyone else. How did you envision your career tra- trajectory after you signed a, a pro deal? And did that vision include a move overseas? And does it does it still? 
like basically I guess the simple way to ask is are you going to go to Europe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um when I when I first signed you know, it it's it really is uncharted waters. Um but at that moment in time, you know, you're on a, a minimum deal or whatever. The only thing I, you're thinking about is, I just want to get some playing time. I just want to get some playing time. And then, kind of as you as you get playing time, as you as your game grows, um, you're on to the next thing. You say, all right, I want to be a full time starter. And then, as that happens, you say, all right, I want to go to the next level, which obviously is Europe. Um, so I think I think for me, it is a dream of mine to go to Europe. It is something that I want to do. Um, just to, you know, I want to test myself. And that's, I think that's, that's key in, in development. Uh, obviously when you're younger playing with the first team, you're, you're testing yourself and you're getting better because you're playing with better players. Um, and that's, that's true. Even now I, I want to test myself, um, and play with the best of the best so that I become better, um, in return. So I think that that's definitely an option and, and something that, I would be interested in, um, but you know, it, time will tell. Who's who do you watch? Who do you watch a lot in European soccer? I mean, there's so, there's so much of it; it's hard to watch all of it. So you, everybody's got to sort of pick their focus. Recently, I've been watching the Champions League, sure. um, but just if a game's on, I'll, I'll go over to Jordan. Jordan's a big uh, Jordan Allen. Um, he's a big Arsenal fan, so uh, I'll roll over to his house and watch the Arsenal games, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, just just whenever something's on, just always taking a couple of glimpses or, or seeing uh, what's going on and, and trying to compare myself to to European players and players at the highest level and kind of seeing how they're carrying themselves and what they're doing in certain situations and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm sure. Would do you do you think about? I mean, surely you've thought about this. When you think about going to Europe, is there a league that sort of sticks out as a good fit for you or? Or is it? Are you more general about it? Uh, I think I'm more general about it. Um, you know, the the goal is is obviously a a, a bigger club or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the way it works out is you kind of whatever comes your way, you you kind of look at it and you say, all right, well maybe I'll go to this team and then work my way up and and approach it like that as opposed to oh i'm gonna go to a big club right away um so it kind of depends on who's interested you know uh that's a tough question to answer i don't know it's it's hard to say where where i would want to land or where i uh would land is there a particular center back that you that you really uh admire that you might try to model your game after yeah i mean ramos is obviously one of the best center backs in the world. So I'm always watching him and, and seeing the stuff he's doing. Um, I don't know. He's, he's just quality. Real Madrid really missed him on uh, whatever day that was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But they pulled it out. They pulled it out. Um, Barely. One, one last question. Then I'll ask, ask if you have any questions you wish I was asking, but um, who's the, who's your least favorite attacker in MLS to play against? I'm sure you've gotten this question before. Yeah. Um, that See, for me, um, my least favorite, I would say I would say Giovinco, just because he's so crafty and, I mean, he can shoot from anywhere. He can find the, he can find the pass. Um, 
but he he's the most he's the most difficult I would say. But I wouldn't say I, I hate playing against him. I think those are the those are kind of the more fun games where you get to you get to play against those those quality players and and you get to line yourself up with the best of the best and say all right this is this is it and and I gotta go out and battle. Um, but in terms of difficulty, I would for sure say Giovinco. Yeah. Cool. Well, anything anything you wish I was asking about that I should ask? No, I mean no. I think you I think you got it covered. I think that was I think that was solid. Good. Well, all the all the best to you, man, for the rest of the season and with your national team career. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's go. The biggest game of the past week for American soccer was the Revier Derby, the most intense rivalry match in German soccer. Crosstown enemies, Schalke and Dortmund in blue and yellow, century-old clubs. This year, they are fighting for second place in the Bundesliga, both trying to stay in the top three so they can qualify automatically for the group stage of the Champions League in the fall. So a lot was at stake when they played on Sunday, and as it happened, the two most important players in the U.S. player pool were involved. Christian Pulisic at right wing for Dortmund and Wes McKinney on to close it out in the last 20 minutes at center mid for Schalke. Schalke won 2-0 and it was deserved. I think most people agree on that. And this puts them so close to a Champions League spot in the fall that they can taste it in Gelsenkirchen. What can we take away from this game for the national team, Greg? Bells, let's cut right to the chase. Do you think that the U.S. national team fan base overrates Christian Pulisic? Ooh, Yes, uh, a little bit. He is a game-changing talent, no doubt. Everybody knows that. It's true. He played well. He even played well in the second half on Sunday, constantly threatening. Should have scored on that driven pullback from Royce, although you might disagree with me about that. Should have gotten an assist when he played Shirley in the box. I actually think he's shown a lot of improvement in the last few weeks, and we can get into that more. But, But I think he's... I think he's overrated in the sense that the American fan base thinks he is like a transcendent number 10 or potentially a transcendent number 10. I don't think that. And I think his his problems, while definitely related to Dortmund's problems this year, his problems getting goals and assists, it's partly the fault of the team in general. It's partly his fault. He's not been clinical enough in the attacking third, either shooting or passing to get those killer numbers and so i think a lot of people blame that on blame that entirely on on dortmund being a mess when i think he you know he's he deserves some of the blame too what do you think is he overrated so i don't know that the fan base overrates his ability right now i think i think people think he's an explosive winger he what i think people tend to do is to think that he has this trajectory that's sort of going to continue the way that he blew up on the scene, that he he blew up on the scene when he was 17. So I think, all right, well, at 18, he's going to be even higher. And at 19, he's even going to be higher than that. So they see it as 17 scoring goals for Dortmund, 18, like running the show, 19, he's playing for Real Madrid or or Barcelona, so, mm-hmm. uh, or Bayern Munich. So I just, I don't think that it, 
that's necessary. Again, I'm, I tend to think that people overrate uh, players' likelihood of hitting some mythical potential. Yeah. I mean, it certainly hasn't gone that way, right? I mean, he, he, he scored goals as a 17-year-old. He scored goals and got assists as an 18-year-old. And he's kind of, at least statistically, plateaued in the last 18 months. Again, there's no nothing wrong with that. He's, he's doing those things at an incredibly high level, especially for uh, an American player in Europe. So it's a, he's playing at a very high level for an American. I just don't know that he's going to like somehow uh, that those numbers are going to see a drastic improvement over the next two to four years. Right. Once to four years. Yeah, I, I saw some – so I'll sort of undercut my own position here and say that I saw – I saw some stuff over the last two weeks that I thought was really encouraging from him. He, uh, two things in particular, against Stuttgart, he had a, he had a, there was a play where he he took a guy on on the right wing, which he does, you know, all the time, and instead of beating him, blowing by him to the, to the end line, he cut back on his left foot and hit an in swinging cross. That I mean, I know he's done that before, but. It just seemed like a new, a little bit of a new strategy. And the, you know, the ball he hit was, I don't know if you saw this play, but the ball he hit, you know, if it had been like a yard shorter or a yard longer, it would have been a goal. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very dangerous ball. And I thought it, it just clicked for me. I thought, you know, if he's, if he's thinking about that and he's, he's like added that to his repertoire in a conscious way, that's a really good development, not just because it makes him more dangerous, but, but that it shows that he's, you know he's hungry and improving, and similar thing against Schalke. I I know the reviews on how he played in that game were pretty pretty mixed. I thought he played n- not great in the first half, but quite well in the second half. There were out of three or four occasions where he he cut in on his left foot and drove across the top of the box. One time uh, slipped the ball in behind. One time played a pass to Shurla at the right at the penalty marker that Shurla whiffed on. So I, so you know, all that to say, I think it seems like he's adding to his repertoire, and that to me is very encouraging. Do you agree that it seems like he's maybe improving a little bit? So I, I'm a, I'm a little more reluctant to say he's improved overall. I feel like what happened was the three months prior to this, maybe two months, uh, he'd sort of been banging his head against the wall with his the way he was playing. Yeah, and you know, I would say there was probably a little dip there, just whether he was trying to do too much or, uh, and so making some of the wrong decisions. And I'd say now we're so, sort of seeing him making the better decisions that he was making that led to his best stats uh, during the 2016-17 year. So I, I kind of feel like it's, it's just sort of a, uh, a balancing out. And I don't think we're going to see – like I don't think it will bear out in any like expected goals or expected assists that he's going to overtake – uh, his previous season or his previous high. I think this is just him slightly riding the ship this season. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess my my sort of extremely optimistic way of looking at it is, you know, maybe he's going through this period of uh, this difficult period. He's he's starting to like sort them, some things out. And then if Dortmund can just get to the finish line here, uh, in the top three in the in the Bundesliga, which is you know which is very much within reach, Pulisic will take these hard won lessons from the last few months and apply them to a breakout season 
when he's 20 years old, which is a good a good age to have a breakout season, you know? Uh, yeah, I'd love it if Dortmund can just make their way into that third slot in the Bundesliga, uh, get to the Champions League, and then improve their squad. I think adding in a lot of quality pieces in the summer is might be what sort of determines where Pulisic's expected goals and assists falls uh, for the season ahead. Uh, I just want him to improve every spot other than Christian Pulisic's. For the for the national team, I don't think he's he's overrated at all. Like he is going to be the I shouldn't say that because I, I feel like I know where you're going to take that comment. But for the national team, his importance is not overrated at all. Uh, he will be the attacking impetus for in, until the next Christian Pulisic shows up. Hopefully, in the next two years, until until Gio Reyna arrives and <laughs> is the number nine, we all think Josh Sargent's going to be right, right. He's just not. I guess my, the way I the, the specific way I think he's he's overrated by the fan base is people think of him as like he's so good we should make him the ten and you know eventually he's going to be a ten for Dortmund and I just don't see that at all. I see I see a dangerous winger who destabilizes a back line when he gets on the ball and he's on his game, but I. I have seen like almost no evidence that he's the kind of player who can who can move through traffic and find a difficult pass and and spray the ball around the field. And I think there's this 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 idea that that's what he is and that's that to me is like a form of overrating him. I think the the reason people think that is because he had those monster games against Honduras at home and against Panama at home you know, four days before we crash out of World Cup qualifying. Where the, in those two games where he was sitting sort of at the top of the diamond, right? Yeah, right. And I think you said in the last po- podcast he runs at people and, and makes them scared, and he certainly does that. But those in those two games, those two teams came at us. They didn't try to exploit our, our empty midfield. They tried to run with us, and, you know, we just annihilated them. In a and when they were sort of tactically shambolic, and I don't think you can use those games as as evidence that Pulisic is a ten, even though a lot of people, I think they do do that. I, I agree completely. I think those games are evidence that if the U.S. wants to run a absolute track meet and run three forwards, uh, then you put Pulisic there and and hope that the other team is willing to oblige. Uh, but I don't see I don't see him as somebody who's going to carve up a, a entrenched defense sitting in at the underneath like in the in the hole or as a ten. It just is not a game. I don't think he would be comfortable there. I think part of it too goes to the U.S.'s sort of desperate like decades long search for that number ten, and so now just wanting to take the current best player and and you know on his meteoric rise and, and try to you know, force that round peg into a square hole. Yeah. Yeah, we we really want that. We really want a player like that. And I, and I, I mean, I would say even if he's a, even if all he is is a automatic starter on the wing in one of the big four leagues for the rest of his career, he's still going to be probably the best American player of all time. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, he's, he's got a very high. I mean, his ceiling is all. His current level is already very high. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna chalk up anything against him if he doesn't end up leading Bayern Munich to trebles for the next five years. The other thing I I wanted to mention about Pulisic 
is despite all his skill and ability and it is he is really fun to watch no doubt about it and he is like we're talking about an excellent player despite all that he's still not that good in the attacking third and um he's not a great finisher yet 71st minute right before McKinney came on on the, for the other side Pulisic uh beats a guy plays Royce into the corner his beautiful build up Royce just rifles a cut a cutback pa- return pass that hit, that like hits Pulisic right at I don't know about the six yard line, and Pulisic skies it over. Now I know that that's not an easy finish, but I yeah I I'm I'm gonna be more forgiving. Uh, I want him to finish it just because it's a chance for a fantastic highlight. But uh, I think that that probably gets finished. I'm completely speculating here but i'm gonna say probably like 20 percent of the time 15 percent of the time Cause just because uh, it was just because the pass was hit so hard it was hit so hard i think there was i think there was at least one other player in between them that had a play on it which is gonna cut pool six uh reaction time down even more it came in like right on a short hop off of his foot uh he'll i'm sure he's disappointed and he knows he's capable of scoring it he probably scores him every day at training but uh you, it's it's something you you see that skied over or you see guys just miss completely uh, a lot. It's not a confidence wrecking sitter. No, not definitely not confidence wrecking. Just that it's I guess sitting on my couch in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm right. I'm, I'm thinking like all you got, all you got to do is just put that on frame and it's a goal. You know, anywhere anywhere yeah. on anywhere on frame is probably a goal. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's a it's a difficult one. He's going to be have the magnifying glass for him the most. Uh, he's going to be who players pin most, or I'm sorry, fans sort of pin a lot of their hopes on. I mean, people know Weston McKenney's a really good player, but he plays such a, uh, for the most part, he plays sort of such a metronome position where it's just like, all right, for Schalke, if he just sort of doesn't get noticed, he's usually doing pretty well. So. Yeah, Pulisic is just the he's the flashiest player in the program and the fan base will attribute some sort of mythical uh skill sets on him that he doesn't have. He's just a very dangerous uh winger. He's he's really great at running at people and he's a you know, a matchup nightmare out on the wing. Um and I think I, I'd feel a lot better if sort of we just sort of recognized him as that rather than uh, you know, thinking that he is the solution to any position that you want to put him in, in the attack. Yeah. Or this, or the idea that the offense should run through him when he's on the field for the national team. I think that's a common idea. And I don't, I'd much rather we think of him as we and the coaches and, you know, the whole, everybody think of him as a, an elegant weapon, but, uh, but just a weapon, not like the engine of the whole team. Where do you think he'll be in three or four years? Is he going to end up at like Liverpool or, Manchester United or Bayern or or what? See that I think I think that's sort of the the idea that the U.S. fans have is that he is destined for one of those clubs, uh, and I think that's probably I mean that, I feel like that's the least likely scenario. I feel like he's either going to just stay at Dortmund and be a uh, you know a five year contributor to Dortmund, being right below Bayern Munich and fighting for uh, Champions League knockout stages. Uh, or he will be sold because Dortmund decide they can improve in that position, and he'll be sold to uh, sort of a second-tier 
English team. Like, I just don't see Liverpool thinking that he's going to make their squad better and that he's the guy they're going to drop $75 million on. Like, that just doesn't seem like, after, the, after this past nine months, that doesn't seem like the most likely scenario. No, it certainly doesn't seem likely after these past nine months. So I guess that's, that's where I'll bring in the, my sort of optimistic take on it, which is I feel like maybe he's got some hard-won lessons that he's learned from this, this time of struggle. And he's going to take those into the fall with a new coach at Dortmund, probably some new teammates, almost certainly some new te- teammates. And he'll just, he'll just explode, have a breakout year at the age of 20. And the, you know, the mythological narrative will be consummated and he will, you know, he'll be sold to Manchester United in the summer of 2019 after a gold cup victory on us soil. You're putting together a little bit more of a pessimistic scenario. Swansea, going to Swansea or, uh, or Wolverhampton. That's what I see. I see, uh, I see him following more like the Renato Sanchez track where, uh, he does build up a lot of sort of value in his name. So, uh, you know, he, he's well known across the world as an up and coming young talent is one of the, uh, premier talents, uh, in the teenage, uh, pool. So, that sort of sticks with players. Renato Sanchez disappeared after the Euros for three years, but he, you know, the name still carries weight because of his Euro performance. So when Swansea City make a move on Renato Sanchez, it seems like this ambitious signing that they're 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 going to change the entire way they play soccer. Otherwise, why would you bring him in? And then he, you know, struggles there, barely gets into the squad, and so I I, I feel like that could be the 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 way that peels it goes is that a uh, Stoke City decides yeah. he's going to. Their answer to appease their fan base. Shakiri Sh- 2.0. Yeah, they're gonna drop forty million on him, and uh, and he'll he'll be dynamic uh, and sc- and have zero assists and four goals. Stoke Stoke is about to crash out of the Premier League. Has which reminds me, has anybody had a worse year or worse eight months on the whole planet than Jeff Cameron? Oh man. Uh, Bruce Arena. I don't, know. I don't know. Bruce Arena somehow coming out of it with a book deal and a bunch of media gigs. I don't. I don't know. It's it's been it's been hard for for Mr. Cameron. If he if he comes out of this anything other than a bitter old man, then it's a credit to the strength of his character. We'll see when when in in June he signs with Colorado Rapids. That's what he. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 1.5 million a year easily. It'll be great. It'll be great for him. Let's talk a little bit about Wes McKenney because he's my favorite player and he got a 20-minute cameo at the end of this very important win for Schalke. Uh what did you what did you make of his performance? Uh it was another sort of mistake-free outing for Weston McKenney. I don't think he's done a single thing to uh diminish his standing for Schalke. I think he's I mean, he's a key player on that squad and a big part of why they are second in the league with a pretty comfortable lead. Yeah, he he got into the box one time and you know, did, nothing came of it, but he did he did make a nice little touch with the outside of his foot and laid it off and then the the cross the cross from the left side didn't really didn't find anybody. And he also earned the free kick. He didn't do anything special to earn it, but he did earn the free kick that led to Naldo's sec the second goal. So that's cool. 
Yeah, so two two very positive. I thought I thought his play in the box there to extend an attack was a positive play from a from from someone you don't necessarily consider a sort of a, an attacking specialist. I mean, it'll be fascinating this summer to see who Schalke picks up. I mean, they're going to have to get in get some reinforcements for the Champions League. They haven't had any European soccer to play this year, so their squad is a little bit smaller than say Dortmund's and It'll be interesting to see if they get any central midfielders because Goretzka is leaving for sure. Uh, Goretzka generally starts ahead of McKenney, and Max Meyer is, you know, widely rumored to be leaving, and Meyer often starts ahead of McKenney too. So, like, it's a big, it's a big summer and a big fall for Weston. You know, I think the door is open for him to claim a central midfield spot at a Champions League squad and be the automatic starter. Just has to just has to walk through it. That would be something, wouldn't it? Uh, that, it's been since Jermaine Jones since we've had that. Uh, I, I Everything I see from him is encouraging. Uh, even, even that little play in the box, like that says a lot because he doesn't find himself there that often for Schalke, but when you're watching it with the American sort of tint, like you, kind, you can kind of assume that we will need him in those spots in the national team shirt. So... Mm-hmm. Anything he can do that is a that farther up the field where he looks comfortable, uh, I feel like is a really big point, a selling point for for the future of the U.S. Yeah, that's a good point. Especially in our in our system, we're going to need our eights to get involved and be helpful in the attacking third. Anything else on the Schalke Dortmund match? No, I just want more U.S. players involved in more of the biggest rivalries in world soccer. <laughs> I was I was going to ask. Uh, I, I keep wanting to say that this this fall would be the first time that we'll have two two Americans in the Champions League group stage at the same time. Is that true? Do you know? I'll have to check. I bet like uh, Sasha Kleschen and Jermaine Jones might have had some overlap. Was Question ever in the group stage, or were they just in the playoffs to get? Oh, they, were, they were in the group stage uh, with Andrew, in, for the Belgian side that he played for. I'm just trying to—I don't remember what years they were. I'm trying to think if that would have been it. We'll have to—we'll have to put our research team on it. Major League Soccer continues in the United States of America. Big game this past weekend was Atlanta versus NYCFC. Great game. Oh, that was amazing. That felt like a playoff hockey game. It was it was just nonstop edge-of-your-seat stuff. Nagby was really good, so I'll, I'll eat a little crow on that. But boy, man, Miguel Almiron and David Villa, those guys are the reason to watch those teams. They're they're so good, and man, they work so hard. You know, like Almiron is Almiron yeah. is running full speed at people all game long. Right, they're, those guys are completely bought in. Uh, it's just like that's they're just amazing competitors uh, who play the game at such a high level. Uh, it has, I mean, it's great for everyone who plays with and against them. 
and who gets the opportunity to watch. Yeah. I don't know the, the I don't know how much more there is to say about it. We're not going to like do a game recap. The one storyline is the Joseph Martinez offsides call on Nagby's Galazzo. That was a really nice strike. I would like to see more of that from him. But I he has that ability where he almost is basically just hitting a pinpoint pass, but into the goal. I mean, he didn't. I mean, he he just sort of curls that like he's curling it around a defender to a to a winger, but he's just putting it just inside the post. Yeah. Uh, the other line, I, the other sort of storyline from that one for you, I know, is I'm always on Andrew Carlton watch, and <laughs> I you know check up on you throughout the game to make sure you're okay. Yeah, he wasn't even in the 18, so who knows? He'll probably be playing with Atlanta United, too, this weekend. I I guess my only sort of sour grapes about that is, as I was watching that game, I was thinking to myself, now what if Carlton, what if one of these players was Andrew Carlton? And I, I looked at, you know, Barco came on for like the last half hour, and Martinez was on, I think, the whole game. And I don't think either of those guys was all that impressive. I mean, I know Martinez has earned his has earned his way. He's a goal scorer, no doubt. But he that that offsides was completely unnecessary and pointless. And I mean, the the goalkeeper Sean Johnson did not have a chance of stopping that shot, no matter no matter how well he set his feet. So I thought to myself, well, what if Carlton had been out there and he was the one called for offsides like that? People would be all over him. They'd be like, send him back to the academy, you know? Uh, people like you, Greg. Yes. You would have gotten a message from me instantly. <laughs> it's not ready. Yeah. And and then Barco, I don't know. I mean, Barco had some, it's got a little more comfortable and had some nice moments, but he was, he looked pretty raw out there. The $15 million man from Argentina. If Carlton had performed that way, I think yeah, we, we had like three giveaways in his first five or 10 touches. Same thing. I think people would have been all over Carlton. So. I'm just I'm just salty that he's not playing, but I think there's a little bit of there's I'm making a, something of a fair point here that there's a scrutiny on. I mean I'm guilty of it too. I scrutinize every move these young Americans make, and maybe like other players don't don't uh, have to deal with the same attention, at least from a certain no, segment right. of us. You're you're right. It's it's the scrutiny cuts both ways. It, you know, the, the mistakes they'll get scrutinized for and people will say things like they're too young or they aren't ready. But on the other side, when they have the positive impact, uh, people will start will tend to say this is the level they'll play at consistently and think that that's what they should expect every time out. And obviously neither of those are going to be good reflections of what a kid's capable of. Right. Yeah, it does cut both ways. Um, Chris Durkin... Uh, speaking of kids, Chris Durkin helped see out a, the first win of the season for DC United. I, I threaded some gifs about it on Monday. I thought it was a good test for him, especially since Ariola, who has been absolutely dire for DC United, got sent off in the 51st minute. So they're down. They're down a man. Uh, Durkin's got to help hold things down against a pretty good attacking Columbus Columbus Crew side. And, you know, he didn't do anything super special, but I thought it was a test, and he passed that test as an 18-year-old holding mid. Positive performance from Durkin. So great to have 18-year-olds getting any meaningful minutes after last year when it was just a couple of teenagers. So uh, 
really good for him. Really, hopefully, he he sort of keeps easing his way into more and more minutes. A couple other notes from domestic soccer before we get to the Champions League. Uh, I thought Jacory Hayes scored a goal. This is a 22-year-old central midfielder. Scored a goal for FC Dallas in a 1-0 win over New England. And he was the man of the match. I I think he's he's gonna be we're gonna be hearing more from him. He's 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 at a little bit of a PR disadvantage because he's a he went to college for four years at Wake Forest and was a super draft guy. But he looks really he looks really good to me as a um as a six or an eight maybe. Better in the middle of the field, smoother and calmer, perhaps against lesser competition so far than Tyler Adams. And he's really only five. Then he's really only five games into his career because he barely saw the saw the pitch last year. So watch out for him, Greg. Jacory Hayes. So are you are you calling Jacory Hayes? Is he in the same sort of? Is it too early to put him in like a Kellen Acosta tier? Is it, is it too? Is he too fresh for that? Yeah, I don't want to jump the gun. Although, I mean, my instinct tells me to put him in like sort of the bottom of that tier, like with maybe Delgado kind of close to the top of the tier and and Acosta in the middle of it. You know what I mean? Right. It's he's not up there. He's not up there with McKenney or Bradley, but but he's well, only- only a couple of them have to really pan out. So if we've got Corey Hayes and Kellen Acosta and Marky Delgado, that's we're just improving our chances. Right, right. And I, th- I think just to be a little more specific about what I liked about him is he he reminds me a little bit of Jonathan Gonzalez in his like apparent tactical awareness as a as a defensive midfielder. He he. Is like he's drawn to the ball like a magnet. He, I think he had 14 recoveries on the night, and when he recovered the ball, he, he it seemed like it was he was calm and he was it was easy for him to sort of transition the scramble into something positive, whether that was possession. Usually it was just possession, but you know that's a that's a really valuable thing. And I, not to not to beat up on Adams, but I don't think Adams quite has that ability yet. You know to sort of bring bring order from chaos and um so that's that's uh encouraging i thought Corey hayes one to watch for the next couple of weeks there we go yeah there's and reggie cannon his teammate 19 year old right back who i've been kind of hard on so far this season put in a really really good performance his looks like his one-on-one defending is as uh has improved by leaps and bounds um I have some USL notes here, but I'm going to skip them, I think. You, you watched some of the Toronto versus Chivas disaster? Yeah, I mean, it was a disaster. I feel like it was a disaster in result only, which I know is sort of all that matters in a championship. <laughs> uh, I didn't think Toronto looked terrible at all. I thought they looked good. They were they were ruthlessly punished for a, sort of like an early mental uh, lapse. Uh but I thought otherwise they looked good. The conditions weren't ideal for either team to be playing in. But I didn't think Toronto was like uh, was even outplayed at all. I thought they they were the better side. In uh, in part of that's game state. Like Chivas is playing on the road, they're not going to necessarily just be trying to attack, attack, attack. Uh, but it's a game that you you know very easily could have finished two zero Toronto, and then everyone would have been talking about what a uh, masterful 
run Toronto, another masterful game plan Toronto put together. Uh, so I don't know, maybe I'm being a little too uh, forgiving of Toronto, but it was it was tough. Altidore was seemed ill. Uh, I mean, he, Altidore was ill. Yeah, it's come uh, out. It's come out. He had food poisoning or something. Yeah, that's that's the word. But he still put in, I thought, a, pr- a pretty good shift. It, it was like he picked his moments even more than he usually does. But uh, I thought he was solid. I thought uh, I thought Delgado was again very impressive. Hmm. Uh, he'll get picked on for like a couple of turnovers because they led instantly to Chivas chances. But his overall play, you see that he is just so smooth and so fluid on the ball, um, which is you know again what we hope to see every time he steps on the field. Yeah, he had the he had the assist on the goal too. Yep, the assist, and I think he won the tackle. I mean, he started the whole play and then keeps moving into good spots. And he's a center mid, right? And he ends up out on the wing because that's just where his natural motion takes him. And he's just really good at following that natural motion and uh, delivers a great ball in. Man, his movement off the ball is really good, and he's our boy, Marco Delgado. He, you know, it's going to be tough for Toronto to win. Uh, down in Guadalajara, but I don't think it's impossible at all. I think they they could they could go there and score a lot of goals, actually. Yeah, you've got Kivinko. Like the, the guy is able to win a game in Mexico almost by him. I mean, not by himself. He's got a lot of talent around him, but he's he's the best difference maker in North America right now. I think. Yeah, no doubt in my mind, and um, surrounded by some good players. I didn't Justin Morrow kind of have a rough outing. Did he come on in the last thirty minutes or something? Yeah, he back. came on. Yeah, he came on. Didn't didn't add very much. Uh, I mean, didn't make any horrific mistakes, but uh, you know, wasn't didn't lock anything down either. The game was stretched. It looked like it looked like a game where Toronto. It looked like Toronto were trying to tie the game up in a like do or die situation, which it kind of was. Uh, so they were they were like all out attack and left themselves kind of exposed in the back for the last ten minutes, going for that second goal. So it was it was really wide open at the end. Not ideal for a defender to come in and you know look good, but you're a goalkeeper. What did you make of the the second goal that was conceded? Uh, that's tough. It's it sucks and it's it's on Bono. I mean, there's no there's no one else you put that on. Like no one else can make a play on it. Um, I don't know exactly what the conditions were if the if it sailed a little bit on the wind. Like you you see that trajectory over and over in uh, in normal conditions, and then. You get on a, out on a windy day, and the ball gets to you uh, half a beat sooner, and it doesn't drop. It you know it stays like a six inches or a foot above where you're used to it staying. Where uh, on a non-windy day, it drops right where the way you think it will. So it's on him. He got his footwork a little bit wrong. Sort of attacked it coming out of the goal instead of dropping towards his far post and recognizing that danger. Mm. Uh, it's it's a it's a bad one, but it's not again. It's, there are a lot worse mistakes that goalies make on a weekly basis. It's a little mark against him, though, right? I mean, yeah. I think uh, I think we've covered it. Let's come back next week and figure out what we're going to talk about. <laughs> All right, Bells. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. Take care.